Remember, Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is an easy way for you to support the show, and it means more stuff for you. Yes, we do a couple of extra episodes a month, but we also throw up all sorts of things like outtakes and old videos we found and more Brian and Murdoch. If you want that in your life, it doesn't cost a lot and it really helps out the show. So check it out. Patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories and support us as we keep telling stories. Don't go to sleep. Mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying to us? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to rock and roll bedtime stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. You get involved in the show by sending us an email. It's really easy. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. That's how your letters get to the show. And on occasion, we like to do like these roundup episodes where we just tackle a few letters that might have similar themes. We, we did this like a year ago back on episode 113. We took a, a series of... Of stories about artists getting naked. That was a yeah. That was a fun very, one. And people really liked it. We got a lot of good feedback a, about that. It was a very popular episode. Yeah, <laughs> Which, you know they so, say we, sex sells, nudity yeah. sells, and it, it it clearly does in our case. Ben, we did it a little more recently. It was episode one forty two, and it's rock stars versus passion projects. Oh yeah, 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 that was fun. Peep, like cases of people sinking their money and support into like things like filmmaking or comedy. And so today, I thought we'd take this approach again. And we'd look at stories behind some songs that have come to our attention that all have one thing in common. And that is that they each seem to be, so they're a, about a separate, but a particular lady. Now, Right, right. This isn't a new subject to this no, show. No. And there was a bonus episode, and I wasn't there, and you it was just you, and it was about my Sharona. Oh, Sharona is a real estate agent. That was my favorite part of that episode. <laughs> yeah. So go revisit that. That's a bonus episode in between 103 and 104, right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. So the you know, this is a, a theme as old as rock and roll, singing about women, right? And you know, I probably should have now thinking about it, like done a little research on the first like love poems about women that men wrote. You know, what is the history on this sort of art and how it then gets adapted into rock and roll. But the first letter we're going to talk about is in regards to a song that it's, it isn't really similar to my Sharona, but in my brain, it sort of is. It's like same time period ish. And it's one that I think of as being in a similar feel. And the, this note, this question comes from a guy named Cliff. Cliff, thank you for listening to the show. He writes, I always heard that 867-5309 Jenny was about a real girl and her real phone number. But now that I'm older, I don't see how this could possibly be true due to lots of legal reasons. Can you clear this up? I also I think it's very funny that he's like, now that I'm an adult, I've put away childish things. <laughs> yes, not not this anymore. So I was like seven and a half or eight when that record came out. So we were listening to that in the freaking gym. You know, and then we, you know, and then, and then I picture you as a seven year old at the gym. Were you going to the yeah. gym at age seven? Was this a thing? Yeah. You, like with well, your dad? No. What the, I'm or like, like at the Y. Like, oh, you mean, oh, at school where you end up in the gym. <laughs> picture you're in you the gym at Gold's gym holding your dad's <laughs> cigarette. <laughs> I don't know what freaking universe you're in, man, but no. No, it's like it's like it's the not like, it's, Creed when he keeps <laughs> keeps training, <laughs> trying to get Rocky to train him. 
you're in that gym in my mind right now. As a seven year old, as stick man, you're at that gym. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh man, oh my God. I'm, I'm sorry was, to do that to you. Go ahead. It's the it's the school gym when you're a kid when there's no athleticism going on. Right. And we right, sat right. around and we listened to Joan Jett. They they played rock thriller. and roll in your school gym. Yeah, like it was the afternoon or something. Like when we were there before school was out or something. That's a and cool so, ass yeah, teacher you had or or yeah sponsor whoever that was. Kudos yeah, to them. Listened, yeah, so that song was a big deal, and I loved that song. It's, it's a great song, and, man. And I, I, I was fascinated by it and wanted to know always if it was a real thing I, I mean, too. And when as soon as I could learn how to play guitar, man, I learned how to play that freaking song. I, I, so I sort sort of similar story. I came to this song at some point in my childhood. I do not think it was at Gold's Gym, but I, I don't really remember when. There, there's something about its construction. I think using numbers. Etc. That makes it especially novel to a younger ear. You know what I mean? Like at least mine. I I definitely didn't understand the underlying crassness of the idea for a long time, but I always thought it was a fun song. Right, right. Tommy Heath from the band that made this thing famous, Tommy Two Tone, got asked in the last five years or so why eight six seven five three zero nine has endured. And he said something akin to what you just said, which here's a quote directly from him. It's numerology or something, a magic combination. It's kind of a nursery rhyme. And I think I injected some soul in it. You know, if I could just figure that out, if there was a formula. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about Tommy Tutote for a minute. They, they This is a really fun just thing in rock history like just this whole like sometimes you go to these bands and you're like yeah they had that one massive song and then like what was their story and so i I love talking about these bands on occasion tommy tutone was formed in 1978 this was the year before my sharona by the knack hits the airways right so jenny comes later so my sharona goes first in terms of hits but the band is together before my sharona comes out and this band will basically always center around two guys tommy heath and jim keller it the one thing that's interesting here is that this song was written by the help of another guy. It's this guy named Alex Call. And so here's some crazy rock and roll nerdiness. He was in a country band with Huey Lewis called Clover. Well, okay, right? so we gotta slow down because people are gonna be like, there's whiplash happening here. Like, wait, you're talking about Tommy Tuto today, you're talking about Huey it's, Lewis. It's hip to be square. It it's it is really interesting stuff, right? Like scenes and how big the world is, but then also how small the world is sometimes. So Clover is this fascinating footnote in rock history if you don't know anything about huey lewis and you don't know any of this just sit back for a second this is gonna blow your mind or if you like this show they, yeah. sit back. <laughs> so they come out of san francisco which is an area we've been talking about a bunch uh on this show and, and they are together for like a decade and they just never quite make it there is this quote though where alex who was in that band um is talking about their pedigree He says, quote, I call us the band that almost was. We made four albums, two for Fantasy Records, which is Credence's label. Yeah. And we made two for Phonogram Mercury with Mutt Lang as the producer. (laughs) I know, right? So he, he says, Alex continues, I was the lead singer and the main songwriter. Huey played harmonica. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. 
Huey, the harmonica player. Yes. Uh, our, oh, straight up, he's a harmonica player. Our lead guitarist was John McPhee. I don't know if you don't... Okay, if you're a real nerd listening to this show, you know John McPhee. He, of course, ends up in the Doobie Brothers after Clover breaks up. Uh, we had a great band, but no hit singles. We spent the last couple of years in England where the core band, so not Alex and Huey, but those other guys were all Elvis Costello's band on My Aim is True. My brain is so... <laughs> freaking crazy like i feel like somebody like you need a you need to be taking notes right now to like like draw this out like how we got somehow here to elvis costello and you could go like 10 feet over across this basement that i'm in right now and see that my aim is true is framed in this house it is like what it's usually part of your background yeah yeah okay so but when they break up huey starts the news right who had 70 seemed like 70 top 40 hits but that one guy uh, it's uh john mcphee he joins the doobies and then another guy will work for lucinda williams and uh i mean it's a big who's who right yeah it's except for alex right but remember they have met all these bands and they are around San Francisco in the 70s, in the aftermath of that scene exploding, which we've talked about a ton on the show. So they know a lot of people, including musicians like Jim Keller, who's been kicking around the scene with this band, Tommy Two-Tone. And Tommy Two-Tone gets a deal on Columbia Records, but the first record they put out is crap. Like, it doesn't really do anything for them. They get one song into the top 30. The record sells less than 200,000 copies. So they're working on songs for a new record because it's a multi-album deal, so they have to keep going. And Jim Keller, he was feeling the pressure to make Tommy Two-Tone perform, but Alex Call is under a different kind of pressure. And this is a, Alex, a quote from his life at that time. I quote, I was flat, broke, and working construction in the dead of winter. <laughs> must suck for a musician. It's a great, succinct quote. quote to tell the story. You know, I don't need any more information. That sounds yeah. terrible. So this is yeah. the this is the where we get the critical components of this story, the part where we suss out the origin of this song. What makes this whole situation remarkable, though, is that these guys figure out pretty quickly what a big part lore is going to play in sustaining this song. And I don't know how they figured this out. I don't know if it was just an accident or if one of them was just really clever and cunning. But when this song does become a hit, and it will go to number four in the Billboard charts, the obvious question in interviews becomes, who is Jenny? And is the story that this song seems to tell true? And so these dudes start feeding the machine with bullshit. (laughs) Spoiler alert. So just for clarity, we should refresh everyone on what this song is about. Oh, yeah. In case you've just never heard this song. I saw your number on the wall. A guy sees a number, often assumed to be a bathroom wall, labeled belonging to Jenny. (laughs) He writes this ode to her, imagining their life together. Dream clouds. End of story. (laughs) So different stories come in when these guys start doing these interviews. 1982 People Magazine. It, it, it's there is some great stuff in that article. Yeah. Oh, um, this is the people's story. I started re- I started laughing so hard reading this. It's <laughs> so funny. Okay. Quote: The real Jenny has disconnected her phone, even though the lyrics beg her not to. According to Jim <laughs> Keller, Jenny is a regular girl, not a hooker. <laughs> Friends of mine wrote her name and number on a men's wall at a bar. I called her on a dare. We dated for a while. I haven't talked with her since the song became a hit, but I hear she thinks I'm a real jerk for writing it. End quote. In in some after the fact chivalry, Keller refuses to divulge her last name. I, I so like how much fun they have at people writing this story. Fun fact, this is how much fun they had at people writing this story. To put a bow on the whole situation, just to be assholes. Like this totally sounds like something you would do. 
if you were just a, a, a rogue music publisher. Uh, they decide to put Jim Keller's phone number at the end of the article, right? Like, so the idea being that he's he's made this girl's phone number infamous, so they're going to put his phone number in it. Yeah, it's, which, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, uh, he who laughs last. But this this idea that Jenny was a real person that Jim Keller dated grows from here. And we see these other stories we'll talk about today with rock rumors in general, of course. But this grows to a point where the band hears it explained back to them. OK, it's like this telephone into stories about Jenny being an actual person who sues the band or puts a restraining order out on Jim or that owned the recording studio and the band hears people say this to them. Like, can you imagine that? Like you, it just grows so big that as it, you know, over the decades, people are like, yeah, I always heard about how, what Jenny did to you, you know, and it's just all stuff that they made up when they were young and, and they don't help themselves as late as 2008. They're still playing along to this, even after some of them are telling different versions in the press that say, oh, pretty much all that is not true. Tommy, the lead singer in 2008, tells some story in an inter- interview that the number was real and that it was the number of a girl that he knew and that as a joke, he wrote it on a bathroom wall in a motel where they were staying. Uh, we laughed about it for years, he said. So they're always perpetuating this on and off. But this is after the actual truth came out. Yeah, Alex we, leave it, it to Alex call. Leave it to Huey's buddy. Right. So he did an interview in 2004 where he explained how the song came about. And it's not interesting in a real world way. Like the way it came about is not interesting at all. But it's very interesting if you're a nerd who likes songwriting. So you and I are going to enjoy this uh here's the story of how it came about according to alex all of all of our listeners are going to enjoy yeah i I think so i think we can all huddle up as a family here and and admit that this is great alex is in his backyard trying to write a song one day and you know this process we you've written some songs right yeah you get that placeholder material inside a melody where like "Mm, mm, 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 baby so you know like for him he's going "Mm, jenny eight six seven five 309, but there's no story. He's just like throwing words in. So while he's doing this in his backyard, between construction gigs or whatever, Jim Keller stops by. And he he's like, hey, Jim, check this out. And he shows him the tune. And he's like, I can't really figure out how to tie this into an actual song, but here's what I'm doing. And so he sings those words. And Jim is just like, dude, that's totally easy. Let's just say it's a, it's a name you found on a bathroom wall. <laughs> Right. So here's a quote from Alex. Quote, when Jim showed up, we wrote the verses in 15 or 20 minutes. They were just obvious. It was a fun thing, and we never thought it would get cut. End quote. So the truth may be out, but Tommy Heath still likes to fuck with people. He told Forbes in 2020. Uh Uh-huh. Quote, they tell me I have a tenuous hold on reality, but Jenny and I think she's real, and Jim and Alex say she's not. That's all I can say. She did give me that number, and I did write it on the bathroom wall instead of giving it to Jim, but they claim that never happened. (laughs) It's funny, though, because whether or not Jenny is a real person misses the true story worth talking about with the song. Oh, dude, you mean the phone number itself? Uh, Yeah, man. I I mean, I remember calling that number. I was going to say, did did you ever call the number? Yeah, yeah. And then but this is the other thing that was, I mean, I remember didn't happen to me. I mean, I probably called like a local number, but I remember other kids got in trouble because they were doing long distance numbers. Trying to find where it worked. Different, different area codes. Yeah, right. For sure. Um, 
but yeah, so that number calling the number became a thing. Dude, I most enjoy how long this phenomenon of dialing that number or discussing dialing that number has lasted. I just want to point out to listeners of this show, that song is older than me. All right? It's 42 years old. I found an article written less than a year ago that compiled accounts of people who had that phone number when the song came out and started getting a lot of random phone calls. And of course, especially at first, most of these people have no idea why this is happening. So there's the, the most famous story probably is this couple in Akron, Ohio, who try to get the phone company to trace what they think is a single number pranking them. So they think like some there's a bad actor, like one person who keeps calling them. And so the phone company agrees to do it, and they call them back. <laughs> Can you imagine being this guy and being like, um, "Those calls are coming from all over the country." <laughs> Did you see the one about the school? The story uh-uh. about the school. So this school, there was a principal, and he couldn't figure out why one of their lines just kept getting blasted, <laughs> busy the whole time, right? <laughs> and so they actually got in touch with the band. And Tommy Two Tone and the local radio station sponsored a dance for the school. Oh my and god! If that, and if that isn't the only radio promo to come out of this, like this is funny for you and I in Chicago, WLS gets the phone number from a woman who owns it. If it, it, she doesn't want that trouble, and by their own report, WLS logged twenty two thousand calls in four days by taking over. That okay, number. this gets me thinking about dumb song related radio station promos. I was did, so. Was it you and I that did the You Look Good in My Shirt promo? Oh, God. <laughs> Things I just want to like this, like the earth to open up and right now I want Dude, it to. Dude, that was pretty good though. I mean, okay, when we put it uh, next to some of this Tommy Two-Tone stuff, I, I think it holds up. Like, uh, you fill in the gaps because it's been a long time and I haven't really thought about this much. But we were working together... And we, it was Keith Urban related. We had something to do, give away Keith Urban tickets, I guess. And at the time, his song, You Look Good in My Shirt, was a big deal. And so we came up with this idea to challenge listeners. This is a very 1980s thing, even though we did it in like 2010 or whatever it was. And see if you can get local celebrities to put the radio station shirt on and take a picture. And so we made a list, right? Didn't we make a list of like people yep. and like assigned points and stuff? And it actually, it, it totally worked. We got a bunch what? of random local celebrities. We got, <laughs> this is not aged well, but we did get, do you remember we got John Schnatter, like Papa John. Oh my gosh, we got Papa John. <laughs> yeah, we oh, did. Wow. We got like local news anchors. I don't even remember who all was on the list, but th- we got a bunch of them and then gave away the tickets, but. Man, that's what that's hilarious. When I think when I hear about these dumb ass radio promos built around songs and just think about man how we used to have to sit in a room and be like, you know what we could do? <laughs> it's so much more wholesome and better of a contest versus the ten thousandth nationwide caller will um, win a twenty dollar gift card to Olive Garden. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to eight six seven five three oh nine. One thing I read said that by eighty three 97 of 106 owners of that number had unplugged from it. So they got rid of it. But over the years since, there are occasional, mostly capitalistic endeavors to make money on this number, including things like trying to sell the number on eBay, which is, I've learned in the research, more nuanced and interesting than it sounds. Because I didn't know this. Did you know the FCC won't let you sell a phone number? Oh. So I guess, I guess not. Yeah. So. If you yeah. have a phone number that's valuable, do you know how you get around that? 
Well, you, uh, the, the business, you sell a, you sell a business. So the bit, the phone number comes with the business. So there have been cases of that actually happening where people sell their business that is totally worthless, but has a great phone number. But one last thing, one business really making this phone number worthwhile. Do you know about totally eighties pizza? Yeah, because I, I lived out in, in Colorado. They were a Fort Collins pizza place. Yeah, I don't know dude. if they're still open. They have a like, They are. 80s. They are. I looked. They're totally still open. You can call them that's right funny. now, eight six seven five three oh nine. That's so that's it. They have yeah. the number. They have an eighties museum. Uh-huh. And that's their uh, that's the call to get takeout or Un- delivery. Unbelievable. Order. What I mean, I can't believe I didn't know that. I sort of want to go to there. Are you looking for a good rock and roll book? Do you watch a ton of rock and roll documentaries like me? Well, that's why I started the Rock Talk Studio podcast to be the place to go for previews, reviews, and recommendations on rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies. Every first Tuesday of the month, the Rock Talk Studio gets you caught up on all the latest and points out where to go for the good stuff. Every 15-minute podcast explores the world of rock and roll books, docs, and movies from every possible angle to leave you with a no-doubt decision on where to spend your time and money. Fan or just casual fan, or maybe you're on the fence and you're looking for something new to check out, either way, I got you covered. Bonus episodes features interviews with talent like New York Times bestselling author Alan Paul, who just came on the show to discuss his new Allman Brothers book, Brothers and Sisters. Join me, Big Rick, every first Tuesday of the month as I host the Rock Talk Studio podcast, the ultimate review of rock and roll books, documentaries, and movies. So in summation, there is no actual Jenny, we think, but is there a Delilah? Let's talk about this. You know, it's my go-to song for karaoke. <laughs> is it really? It's, it's it's not the plain white tees. It's the Tom Jones version. Oh, Tom Jones, Delilah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because people people are like it's like a like a song. It's like a sea chanty. You know, it's like my 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 <laughs> Delilah. And then when you hear the lyrics, it's like it's like the before the second chorus, he stabs her in the back. Like, I, you and know. she laughs, and she laughs no more. And like, Delilah is a straight up OG song <laughs> of Tom Jones, like talking about whacking somebody. <laughs> I will so, say, I did not investigate if Tom Jones actually murdered Delilah. That is not where yeah. we're headed. I don't want to disappoint anyone. So I, I wanted to like this is something we had talked about. It's when we sort of started talking about this how we'd put together these things. This was something that came up and this was something I had to research myself because I didn't know that much about. Um, but it, it was nominated for song of the year and best pop performance. Like at the like freaking Grammys. Was, it was huge. Yeah, the, Right. Right. We're talking, of course, sorry, because we didn't actually say this. We're talking not about Tom Jones. We're talking about Hey There, Delilah by the Plain White Tees. Uh, this letter comes from Sarah, who says, quote, I used to love the song Hey There, Delilah when I was in middle school, but I remember someone telling me that the guy who wrote it was a stalker who had a restraining order taken out against him by the actual Delilah. Is this true? And I I wondered about this, too, because at some point I was like, it kind of re- sparked a memory that like that there was something that that happened because of the so song this, and who it was about, but it just kind of went in and out of my brain. When pe- it happened. People think this. I mean, but, like my daughter has said this to me. Hey, do you know, I, we don't listen to that song because that guy's got canceled or whatever. <laughs> like, that's a real thing. He's been canceled thing? in high oh. schools across America t- 15 oh. years after the fact. But wait, let's talk about this band and this <laughs> song first, right? This song took 
forever to perform. This is another like some of these things when we get into the we we say the show is about our about your favorite artists and songs, right? And we talk a lot about artists. It's fun to talk about songs in the business of music sometimes because there's great stories wrapped up in just how songs become known. And this song took forever to become known. It was on multiple albums. This was a band being marketed as a pop punk emo band in the early 2000s. They were on Fearless Records, a label that I used to love back in the day. I would just go see anybody that came through town on Fearless. Uh, I would just go see them So I, you, because Fearless was a great stamp of approval. Uh, but uh, in a, if you don't know that label, Fearless was formed in 94, and they broke Bigwig. They broke Dynamite Boy. And then... The heavy at hitter the things they did, yeah, they got at the drive-in and and the Aquabats. Let's not forget, uh, they were a, a great label. Yeah, and so the Plain White Tees were together a whole decade before that Grammy nod, before they had that hit, and early in their career, that lead singer that we're going to discuss this about, Tom Higginson, is his name. He was driving the van and they crash, and he broke vertebrae in his back, and he ended up having to learn to have do therapy to relearn how to walk. So when they do finally happen, and this song takes over the airwaves, these guys are not young and inexperienced, and they've been playing that song already for like four years. Right. But is there a Delilah? (laughs) That's the question (laughs) that was posed in the letter. So I will tell you that this is actually a much easier mystery to suss out than Tommy Two-Tone's Jenny, because... Delilah, it turns out, would make a name for herself. She was a big deal. Delilah de Crescenzo. Uh, she was born about a month before I was in 1983. Uh, she's an American dis- distance runner, and she competes in the women's 3,000 meters steeplechase. Now, I consider myself a runner, but I honestly did not understand that terminology when I read it. So let me translate. This is a track and field race that involves obstacles. And so she tries to make it as a runner after college and attempts the Olympics. London 2012 doesn't qualify. Wow. But that's not why she's famous. No, she's not famous for that at all. That's just a, no. <laughs> that's a footnote. She met, she met this guy in a band who I was just talking about that broke part of his back, Tom Higginson, <laughs> that's in the plain white tees. Yeah, that happens in 2002. So... Here's the story how I understand it. Tom has a friend at the time named Kim. And Kim and Tom are going to a concert one night. And Kim is like, oh, hey, I have this friend in town who is about to go back to art school tomorrow. Do you care if she hangs out with us? Yeah, so this is a quote from Tom. Mr. Higginson. Quote, we picked this girl up, and as soon as she walks out her door, I'm like, oh, my God, she's so beautiful. But she had a boyfriend the whole night. I'm just being goofy. I know there's nothing really going to happen there. I don't have any games. I'm just being a goofball trying to make her laugh, end quote. So the three of them have a great time together. And when they go to drop her off that night, he hands her one of his CDs. Because remember, he'd been in this band for like five years already. And we've all known young, desperate, trying to make it rock guys, right? And this is the move. This is the move you do. And so he says something cheesy or cheeky depending on how you look at it. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, I've got a song about you. Yeah. There's more here from an interview with Tom. Quote, she went back to school in New York the next day, and we kept in touch a little bit on on AIM, which I assume is a, 
America Online Instant Messenger. Yeah, AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> so yeah, it dates what, the story a little bit. Yeah, but I, I, it's like makes me feel old. Um, she was loving this CD I gave her, which was her album before the one with Heather Delilah. And she kept asking, where's my song? When do I get to hear my song? It was always just super innocent. Yeah, but then he does what any stupid ass college guy would do. When I when I read the story, I was like, and we Tom and I are almost the exact same age. So I was like, I would have done this exact same thing. He says to her, I haven't written the song yet, but it's going to be the greatest song that I ever write, and it's going to make me famous, and you're gonna be my date to the Grammys. Uh, but what it, what's funny is that they don't know each other very well, right? Like, they just they met once. They've sort of kept in touch. It's just flirty shit. So he starts to write this song, and she goes to Columbia for college. So yeah. he literally, like, he's it's, it's like this joke thing that he's going to do to write the song for this girl he met. So this is all he's got. Hey there, Delilah. What's it like in New York City? Because that's all he knows about her. And, and he's out. He's got nothing. He's actually said, this is a real quote, quote, I had to imagine the rest of this. If I was in this long distance relationship with someone, what would I want to say? So that, that was like the songwriting exercise. So this is a Captain Obvious statement. So, but. You know, when the song comes out, it was really awkward for Delilah's boyfriend. <laughs> when the ba- okay, there are stories that when they would play New York, she would come to shows. And I read that, you know, I mean, and who knows how true this is, but like that the boyfriend would like wait outside and, you know, pace back and forth and dumb shit like that. It, it, but it's unimportant because the next part is true. And you have that last quote from Tom. Read that. Right, right. The quote is, when we got nominated for the Grammys, I called her up and was like, hey, so we just got nominated for two Grammys. Hey. Remember when, before I wrote the song, I said, you'd be my date for the Grammys? You got to come. And then she said, actually, me and my boyfriend just broke up. Hey, I can't believe this in fucking book. happens. It fucking happens for him. This photo's buried in the show notes somewhere if you want to go look at it. They're all on the red carpet together. It's freaking adorable. Nothing ever happens romantically. They, they never get together, the two of them. Right. So we can say for sure the restraining order thing is false? So there is an interview, and this echoes what we talked about with Tommy Tutone, right? Where Tom will talk to the Toronto Star and says, quote, everyone has their own ideas about who Delilah is. The song came on in this bar, and our drummer's girlfriend was there. And she heard some guy talking next to her and overheard him say, quote, I hear the singer in this band is screwed. That girl Delilah is suing him for using her name in the song, and she's got a restraining order against him. People are making up their own stories, and it's kind of weird, end quote. Yeah, it's kind of similar to our first story. So, yeah. I mean, this has become its own fake rumor. Yeah, this idea of, because we talked about that on the show before. Like, we talked about the rib rumor and the hamster rumor and the sailor semen rumor, like, we, <laughs> way back in the history of the show. Uh, all these templates that get assigned to different artists throughout history. This is the, quote, girl I wrote the song about put out a restraining order on me template it, it, i mean it really is sort of a thing you hear it applied to different artists and it's like not really true you've got tommy two-tone you have plain yts i'm sure very soon we'll have another one it's it's time urban nbr this september in louisville kentucky with bruno mars the killers black keys brandy carlisle plus duran duran Billy Strings, the Black Crows, the Avid Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Bourbon and Beyond, September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com.
Okay, so are, are you down for one more of these single-song investigations? Oh, yes, I am. Bring it on, dude. Okay, so this letter is from a woman named Rose. Guys, I, Hi, love, Rose. I love the show. Wondering if you could help shed some light on the story behind a song that has haunted me since high school, and that would be ACDC's Whole Lot of Rosie. Was Rosie a real woman, and why, oh, why did so many boys in my high school have to know about that stupid song? Because uh, of ACDC. Sorry, Rose. <laughs> they, they made it possible. I have, I have no insight into the second question, except <laughs> the boys are probably mean-spirited jerks and horny. Like, who really knows? And, and it's kind of like, like a, a guy likes, likes listening to ACDC. You know? They kind of are fit for the gender you know around this time in the late 70s my mother whose name is rosalie was going by rosie now i have never asked her if she knows this song because that would be uncomfortable for me but my guess is since it wasn't sung by the carpenters probably not she was big into the carpenters right uh so let me tell you i uh remember listening to this song over and over and over again because of the record it was on this is the eighth and final track on their fourth record, Let There Be Rock. It was released in Australia in March of 77. The international version of this LP that we get here in the U.S. is a little later that year. And a few countries get actually, get it as a single, and some get it twice. The 78 live version also gets released as a single, uh, which is funny enough. Fun fact about this song, though. It was actually a different song first. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you probably know this. Yeah, the main riff had different lyrics, and it's called Dirty Eyes. And that's on the ACDC Bonfire box set. Excellent. If you're ACDC, it's... it's like, I love when you talk about ACDC and Molly oh. Crew and Kiss. Like, you literally talk, talk about them like Anthony Bourdain would talk about food. <laughs> like, you, you, like, your lips got wet, and you, like, almost chef-kissed without meaning to when you said, oh, that box set. That box set opens with a live radio broadcast, and it's like, hey, this is Duke Ellington coming to you live from Atlantic Studios in New York City with the first of a series of live concerts. Ladies and gentlemen, ACDC. <laughs> and, and it is, man, it is hard as hell. It's a great way to start off a box set versus like, here's the demos from the cassettes oh my that God. we did. Anyway, so Dirty Eyes was slower and the chorus, the lyrics were, were different. They were going to put it on an EP that ended up getting scrapped and the songs get moved to another release. And in that process, they rewrite it and gets turned into this famous, infamous song that's been covered by a ton of people. Uh, Guns N' Roses, most famously, kind of, I would say. Um, I saw Corey Taylor and Friends do this also. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Scott Ian from Anthrax plays in that band, and I don't know who else is in it other than him. Um, and they do other ACDC songs. Totally weird. So anyway, this is a song that got edited for radio, but not for the lyrics. It got the radio edit for the some music. So if you know the radio version, you might want to check out the guitar chaos in the album version immediately. <laughs> So what what is this song about? That will get us closer to answering the question, right? Why don't you tell us what this song is about? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's say that out of the songs we're discussing today, this is the, probably the song that holds up the least <laughs> in terms of aging 
and <laughs> standards of what we consider to be offensive and not offensive. And that's saying something because Jenny is a number on the bathroom wall. Now that kind of <laughs> now that kind of feels like the fifties. Okay, yeah. Let me let me just read you verse one. Uh, Want to tell you a story about a woman na, na, I know? Na, 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 na. <laughs> when it comes to loving, she steals the show. She ain't exactly pretty and ain't exactly small. For two thirty nine fifty six, you could say she's got it all. Yeah, and uh, Bon Scott is unbelievably ferocious singing uh, that song, and it's an irreverent song about a woman of uh, larger size. What was the video I let you hear earlier? Where uh, he said, "This is the story about the largest woman he had ever fornicated with." It was like this is really how you're introducing the song, dude. So it's it's not a definitely not a good look for like a you know world famous uh, band. But what makes this catch people's attention is it'll end up becoming a talking point and a stage prop for the band. Like the <laughs> they had a whole lot of Rosie like in the like in the background like as a big prop. it would like float across the stage right like a huge inflatable woman. Yeah, right. Um, it's absolutely just ugh, all of that. Just you can, terrible. I'm sure you can find pictures of that in the show notes as well. Uh, so this begs the question, though: Are, are they right. referring to an actual woman? Right? It's, if this is just a made-up concept that's degrading but impersonal, that's one thing. I, I, if they're referring to an actual woman, is it worse? Like, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. So the band's been pretty clear. It's a real story. Rosie's a real person, but who knows with a larger than life act like ACDC, who technically had a third singer named Axl Rose for a little while mm. when he was working part-time before <laughs> Brian Johnston got back in the band. So, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. We need to talk about Jesse Fink. Yeah. He, so he becomes part of the story. He becomes part of the story because he is one of the preeminent ACDC guys, scholars, right? Like he's still For studying sure. and reporting on this band to this day. He has several books in and he's specifically informed on the Bon Scott era. And so earlier this year, he did some writing on his own website about this ongoing mystery as to who Rosie was slash is. So... This is a really funny piece to read, too. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this. If I start to get the giggles, this is from the piece. Okay. Having written two books on ACDC, it's a question I'm asked all the time. Who was Rosie? Was this a titanically proportioned succubus reel? Was she really <laughs> as big as the song Whole Lot of Rosie makes her out to be? Okay. I, I, I love that Jesse takes this very serious he takes it very seriously and so i like yes it's a little bit funny but it's also like a little inspiring because this dude is a hundred percent serious about his job i'm going to summarize his findings the best i can here to make this succinct but this piece is really thorough and pretty thoughtful in reckoning with the problematic portions of this part of acdc's output which for for <laughs> Let's just side note for a second. I said to you at one point, want to talk about a problematic ACDC song? And then you just made a list trying to guess which problematic ACDC song we we're going to talk about. And a whole lot of Rosie wasn't on the list. Well, I just kind of assumed that that was obvious <laughs> or maybe that's what we we're going to talk about. But walk all over you and I put the finger on you. Oh my my God. hands all out of control. That that freaking song and. Um, touch too much. Um, 
I mean, not to, seem- not to mention just the big hits. Like all of them are are you know <laughs> big balls and hell's bells and you know there there's not a lot of subtlety in what ACDC does. And there's a lot of people who I know, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of of specifically age group like elder millennial. I know a lot of rock enroll musician guys who are like the one band that sucks the worst is ACDC. And I, I don't subscribe to that, but I do wonder if there is a little bit of being a little closer to that era, being a little bit of one of Rose's high school mates in the late seventies, hearing this for the first time that really endears it to you. And with perspective and with people who have maybe made it a little more intelligent and palatable since then, Mm-hmm. maybe that is why some folks look back and look at sort of the simpleness of what AC do, ACDC does. Because, I mean, they're they're very good musicians, but would you agree that they, they sort of broke down riff-based rock and roll to its purest form? Yeah, and I I didn't appreciate it enough until I started watching the tributes come in when Malcolm Young passed away. And, and get like really like famous celebrity musicians were like, man, that's that guy is like the heartbeat of, you know, rock and roll. Like he was, he wrote like, he's in the back. He's the rhythm guitar player, but he, he wrote the songs. Oh, too. Yeah. He, he I, I think they get a short script. I mean, I am, I'm a bit of an ACDC defender in terms of their place in rock history. And it, you can tell if you listen to the show, cause we've talked about ACDC a lot. So you can go back and hear our episode specifically about Malcolm getting in a knife fight. You can hear the, uh, the episode about ACDC getting blamed for the Night Stalker killings in the 80s and the satanic oh, yeah. panic that was wrapped up in that. We've, we've talked about them a bunch, but let's talk about specifically this song. Here's, here's the cliff notes, right? A 2000 interview, Angus Young said that the tune comes from when ACDC was playing in Tasmania. Now, this looks to be backed up by looking at their tour schedule. They did, and this is what I'm saying about taking this really seriously, right? They did play shows there with Bond, uh, one in July of 75, five in February of 76, and three in February of 77. So the story behind the song itself is supposedly that Bond was yanked into a random doorway by a largely proportioned woman who did fit those specific measurements. Well, I mean, I don't think he measured her, but these were the measurements he was using to describe her that are in that first verse. And this was like while he was walking the streets after a gig, and she pulled him in and said, hey, Bond, in here. And then the story goes that it was the woman who would become known as Rosie and a friend, and Bon is said to have disappeared with both of them for a while. Now, all of that is pretty standard in the telling. Most versions include those details. After this point, the story can then change depending on who it's who's telling it to you. Yes, aha. Uh-huh. Like when when you, on Dateline when it's like, oh, that pesky DNA. Right here would be us <laughs> saying, oh, that rumor and innuendo. <laughs> So Angus, and I want to apologize to anyone about a couple of things I'm going to say that we've already talked about some offensive things in this episode. And some of this is a little offensive, too, for sure. Angus told the Record Mirror, it's an English publication, in 78 that Bond has a fetish about big women. He used to party around with these two girls called the Jumbo Twins. Okay, so ACDC Hardcores might be familiar with Phil Sutcliffe's famous sound story from 76, the dirtiest story ever told, Mm -hmm. which we will not share, in that there was probably (laughs) the earliest telling of 
the story about Rosie. And in this version, it happens in the dressing room and Malcolm is there. See how this is kind of getting all over the place. Malcolm describes Rosie as Big Bertha or the fat one. And he says she has a friend with her who is ugly, but not that bad. Good God. I should have said, I should have said where the quotes were in there. Yeah. This makes it sound like I'm saying it. Because I'm not. Let's, this is let's, just hey, I just want to point out that anything that seems super offensive that Murdoch is reading is a quote. <laughs> it yeah, is so, very much. It's got quotation marks around it. Here, I, I've got one more and I'll use the quotes. You ready? Bond will say things around this time like, quote, she would have broken my arm if I'd refused, end quote. I just wanted to, thought that was funny <laughs> to say it that way. This is also a component of the story that says that Rosie was a uh, collecting rock star conquest, like, you know, and so uh, almost famous, right? And Bond would have been around number 30. And so for the details of this story, there is a version that puts it at the Freeway Gardens Motel in North Melbourne, where, quote, this chick Rosie lived across the road, uh, Mark Evans, who played bass with ACDC at the time, says that Rosie was running a brothel and that she had red hair. Like, there's all these little details that float out there about this. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out because that stage prop of Rosie floating around the stage was blonde. But when you hear people talk about her, they say she had red hair, the actual one. Right. But all this was floating around in interviews and became lore. But in over four decades... No Rosie ever came forward. So that means one of a few things. She never existed. One. Number two, she was dead. Or number three, she didn't want the publicity. Yeah, imagine that, that you might not want the publicity from that song. Uh, So this is how we get back to the journalist Jesse Fink. This is him talking. Quote, from time to time since 2013, when I wrote The Youngs, that's a book about the brothers in ACDC, Various fans have approached me to tell me that Rosie is a real person, alive and living in Northwest Tasmania. But my experience has been that those individuals who boast that they know Rosie today never seem to come up with any details beyond what's already available on the internet or in books. They don't add any new elements to the story. So he's got these examples of people throughout the last two decades who seem to be legit, but then he gets in closer inspection and he figures out they're just regurgitating info that was available elsewhere. But Jesse says that just in the last couple of years, so he published this this year, this particular piece, and he says just in the last two years, he finally thinks he made a breakthrough in this research. Do you want to read that quote? Yeah. In 2021, I was contacted, wait, quote, in 2021, <laughs> I was contacted by an Australian woman, she will remain nameless, who heard me talking about the song, She'd known Rosie personally and her story checked out. So he goes on to say that what she lays out does coincide with other things that he'd heard. And then that she's able to explain pretty convincingly that like a story as to why Rosie has never come forward and why this has stayed a mystery. And that's because according to her, Rosie died of a heroin overdose in 1979. Right. So trigger warning for anybody that doesn't want to, hear about addiction or things like that this is coming up right now so um from the australian woman who talked to jesse fink this is what she said quote rosie had a very sad life she became a heroin addict and a prostitute to support her habit she saw bond for about six months before he went to england she was a big girl tall and heavy she was part pacific islander on her dad's side and her mom was tall and if i remember correctly she's very probably around the size Bond wrote about, about when she was 
you know, ravaged by drugs. I couldn't tell you if it was exact. I never weighed or measured her and know she wasn't ex- pretty. It's been over 40 years since I knew her and she was a law unto herself. I do agree with you. She's entitled to be humanized, but please don't forget that while I knew about her and Bond back then, I didn't know that song existed until years later. Um, or there was so much interest in who she was. It wasn't my story to tell, end quote. Now, this story Jesse is told could have still all been bullshit, but using info this, that this woman corroborated, another journalist dug up the death certificate. Rose Marie Carol Garcia. She died in Melbourne at age 22 on March 2nd of 1979. And from there, they were able to actually find someone who knew her and had a photo. And so, of course, if you want to see that photo, it is in the show notes. And I'll let you it know. It is in the show notes. The, the reports of her size and ugliness, in my opinion, have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah. I like how Jesse ended the piece he wrote about all of this by saying, quote, this is whole lot of Rosie, a human being, not the butt of a joke. R.I.P. Rosie. Uh, if you want to get involved, if you've got a song you want us to research or an artist you want us to talk about, send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Thank you for everybody who sent one in for this episode. And if you want to get involved with us on the socials, Instagram, it's backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Facebook, it's backslash the story guys. Click the show notes and still win tickets to Bourbon and Beyond. We've still yo, got a, a, another week or two for you to win those tickets. That is happening in September in Louisville, Kentucky at the Highland Festival grounds, and you can see folks like Blondie and Bruno Mars and Train and Belinda. Uh, I was going to say Belinda Carlisle. Brandy Carlisle. That's Belinda Carlisle is not going to be there, unfortunately. No. The Killers are going to be there. Oh, and Wayne Newton. And Wayne Newton. To get that. That's true. <laughs> we, did, we did get a Lister email from one of our uh, f- uh, friends and fans, Charles. Uh, I just saw it earlier in the inbox, and he was just like, Man, I just listened to Wayne Newton covering the Beatles, and it was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. What should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.